recorded live. Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Christagenia Internet Radio. Today is Friday, December 6th, 2013. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and thank you for listening. Next week, well, December 13th is five years since I have did my first internet radio program fresh out of prison. I was only five days out of prison and did my first internet radio program with Eli James. I've been here practically every week since then and, and many in between days. Next weekend I plan, uh, I don't know if I want to call it a celebration, but next week... I plan on having call-ins all weekend on my programs. I, I hope to make them two two-hour programs. We'll see. I haven't taken calls in a long time. I used to have open forum programs, and 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 that they had varying degrees of success. Some of them have seventeen, eighteen thousand downloads. Most of them have a hundred, maybe two hundred. I don't know that the um, most of them were rather obscure, some of them were, were very popular for various reasons. That the um, the old open forum program sometimes ran three, four, five hours and, and I'd, I'd sit here on TalkShoe and talk to whoever called in, including trolls and, and, and certain men who have exposed themselves as Jews since then. Well, I plan on doing that next weekend uh, I would um, look for callers. I, I would invite participation from, from anyone, friend or foe. If you have a question, I'll entertain any honest questions. I, I'll entertain any topic as long as it's related to the Bible and the Christian identity or, or, or to modern history, ancient history, politics. That's okay. I won't entertain trolls. Certain people don't stand a chance. I hear their voices. I'm just hanging up on them. That They've proven themselves to be trolls over many years, and, and I'm not going to give them an audience. I'm not going to waste my time on them. They know who they are. Anybody with an agenda is probably going to be mistreated. That's just the way it is. That's After five years, everybody that's heard me should know how I am. I'm not going to deal with agendas. I will deal with any honest question, and, and I do invite honest, brotherly Christian participation, whether you agree with me or not. We could discuss things. So that's next weekend, Friday and Saturday nights, and, and I decided to do that because, well, well, some of the people I spoke to in advance that expressed interest in participating some only listen on Fridays, others only listen on Saturdays. I figure, what the hell, it's five years, I, I, I'll do it both days, and, and it might be interesting. So I invite your participation. I would like to keep the topics related to Christian identity, and, and especially around the, um, well, well, a lot of the material in, in the Christian identity direction section of the Christiania Forum what would be a good starting point. I'll be reading... Um, Next Friday night, I plan on, on beginning, on, on setting the tone by reading my latest um, 
Saxon Messenger editorial, which has to do with the um, the countenance of, of evil and whether or not we should even accept certain peoples as Christians. And, and of course we should not, not if we're real Christians. I want to thank um, Mike Delaney of ProThink.org for sending me an awful lot of website traffic the last three weeks. Um, it, it's it, it, a lot of the people just come and go. Of, of course, ProThink attracts a lot of um, secular white nationalists and things like that. Um, pe people that we, we really wouldn't expect us to, to tarry on a Christian website. But that's okay. Mike's helping to um, to get my work in their faces. And, and if they've made the offer and they don't want to examine it, well, that, then the, the, the onus is on them. There's no... Um, a, a lot of people, a lot of people, a lot of white nationalists are good people and sincere people. They're just turned off from Christianity because they haven't heard the truth. They haven't heard the true Christian message. They don't know what it's really about. That they, 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 they're in the same shape that Judeo Christians are in, who hear the Jewish version of the Bible and accept it. Judeo Christians are a lot worse off than a lot of white nationalists are, who, who, who basically have good hearts and, and are trying to do the right thing, but simply don't have the right information. That the um, it, it's it's always good to try to reach those people, and and they're probably a minority of white nationalists who who would be susceptible to our message once they heard the truth about history in the Bible. But we we have to try to reach all of our brethren. That that's the way it is. And a lot of good Christians are just, um, well, well, they're caught up in the lies of the world. And, and we, identity Christians, the, those of us who do um, seek the truth, I'm not going to be bold enough to say that we have the whole thing. No, no, no man knows everything. I understand that. But, but those of us who do seek the truth, and, and I believe that the Christian identity message is closer to it than, than, than anything else since the Christ walked the earth and, and his apostles. A lot of us who do seek the truth, we were also caught up in white nationalism or in Judeo-Christianity or, 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 or neocons or, or, or Reagan Republicans or, or whatever. We've all been in error. So we really shouldn't despise our brethren who are still in error. We should be that shining city. We should be that lantern on the hill, as I wrote a year and a half ago in a paper called Christianity is Nationalism. With this, we shall proceed with our presentation of the Book of Acts. This is actually part 28. With Acts chapter 21, we left off with Paul in Jerusalem after he had seen the Apostle James and after opting to submit to undergo a purification ritual in a temple. 
spotted in the temple by certain Judeans who knew Paul from his ministry in Asia. Upon their having accused him of defiling the temple, Paul was arrested in the ensuing commotion. Given the violent climate in Judea at the time, as we exhibited in the last segment of this presentation from the pages of Flavius Josephus, Paul's arrest surely saved his life. Here, upon his arrest, Paul is about to be brought into the Roman military encampment under the custody of the commander, who is a kiliarch, a sort of lieutenant commander of a legion whom the Romans called a military tribune, as we would transliterate the title into English. We will begin with the last paragraph of Acts chapter 21, which we reserved for this presentation, since it better fits in with the context of Acts chapter 22. From verse 37, then being about to enter into the encampment, and, and fortress is what the King James has, and that's fine, Paul says to the commander, Is it possible for me to say something to you? And he said, You know Greek? He was surprised that Paul spoke Greek. Then you are not the Egyptian who was before these days making an upset and leading out into the desert 4,000 men of the assassins? The commander, took, the commander mistook Paul for, a, for an Egyptian leader of the Sicarii, or the assassins, as they were called. I, I translated. The King James transliterated the word Sicarii, and I chose to translate it as assassins. The assassins were a group that had been causing much trouble in Judea, and which is discussed and frequently mentioned by Flavius Josephus in his Histories of the Period. Speaking of a period very close to the same time, actually following it by about two years. From Josephus's Antiquities of the Judeans, from Book 20, we had the following description from line 185, where Josephus wrote, Upon Festus's coming into Judea, it happened the Judea was afflicted by robbers, while all the villages were set on fire and plundered by them. And then it was that the Sicarii, as they were called, those same people we see referenced here, who were robbers, grew numerous. They had been around for a few years. Their numbers blossomed just in, in a time immediately following Paul's arrest here. They made use of small swords, not much different in length from the Persian scimitars, but something crooked, and like the Roman sicae, or sicahi, or sickles, as they were called. And from these weapons, these robbers got their name. And with these weapons, they slew a great many, for they mingled themselves among the multitude at their festivals. When they were come up, in crowds from all parts to the city to worship God, as we said before, and easily slew those who they had a mind to slay. They also came frequently upon the villages belonging to their enemies with their weapons and plundered them and set them on fire. Now, that's the end of my quote from Josephus. 
that the Sicarii took advantage of the crowds at the feasts, as Josephus explains, and that this time when Paul was arrested was the time of Pentecost when he had to get to Judea for the time of Pentecost, so it, it must have been around that time. That probably assisted the commander's confusion when Paul was accosted, when he was attacked by the crowds, the commander must have thought that the crowds were defending themselves against the Sicarii, or one of them. Here Josephus speaks of the beginning part of the proconsular term of Porcius Festus. And Festus is introduced to us as having taken office two years after Paul's arrest as it is described in Acts chapter 24. So we see the historicity of the, of, of the reference to the Sicarii in Luke because they were a major problem in Judea at this time. Verse 39. And Paul said, I am a Judean man of Tarsus of Cilicia, a citizen of no obscure city. Now I ask of you to allow me to speak to the people. The first sentence of verse 39, the Codex Beze has only, I am a Judean man, having been born in Tarsus of Cilicia. Tarsus, the chief city of Cilicia, it, it may be misread Cilicia because it's spelled with C's in English instead of K's as it was spelled in Greek. Cilicia. Cilicia was a city renowned for its culture and learning. In book 14 of his geography, Strabo says of the place that the people at Tarsus have devoted themselves so eagerly not only to philosophy but also to the whole round of education in general, that they have surpassed Athens, Alexandria, or any other place that can be named where they have been where there have been schools and lectures of philosophers. But it is so different from other cities that there the men who are fond of learning are all natives, and foreigners are not inclined to sojourn there, and, and Athens, of course, was famous for the, the, the aliens who would come to study there, the, the other people from the entire Greek world who would come to study there. Neither do these natives stay there, but they complete their education abroad, and when they have completed it, they are pleased to live abroad, and but a few go back home. Further, the city of Tarsus has all kinds of schools of rhetoric, and in general, it not only has a flourishing population, but also is most powerful, thus keeping up the reputation of the mother city, meaning Tarsus. It should be no wonder, Strabo talking about Tarsus the way he did, that Paul called his hometown no obscure city, or that Paul, as his epistles fully demonstrate, was a very educated man, not only in scripture and Hebrew learning, but also 
in the learning of the Greeks. And Paul's epistles show that to a great extent. He, he, um, he uses Greek literary devices, and, and I hope to, to, to elucidate a lot of that when I discuss Paul's epistles in the forthcoming months, Yahweh willing. He, he, um, he quotes Euripides, he quotes um, many other Greek writers, Callimachus, Epimenides, he, he 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 uses literary devices that that um are peculiar to Greek poets from five centuries before his own time. Paul certainly had an, an education in the classics and Greek learning as well as the Hebrew Bible and the scriptures and 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 the the law and everything else that came along with being a a learned Pharisee. Verse 40. And upon his allowing him, Paul standing upon the stairs motioned with the hand to the people, the translation being very literal. And there coming a great silence, he spoke out in the Hebrew language, and the Codex Alexandrinus only has in his own language, saying, and according to the popular chapter and verse divisions, the final line of Acts chapter 21 ends in the middle of a sentence. And what Paul actually said begins in the first verse of Acts chapter 22. Men, brethren, and fathers, you hear now my answer to you. My answer, or my, my speech in defense. The Greek word, apologia, is the word from which we have the English word apology. It's a direct relation of it. It's, a, it's directly derived from it. To offer an apology is originally to make a speech in defense of a position or an action. Today, more often than not, it is merely treated as a vain expression. Verse 2 of Acts chapter 22 and hearing that he called out to them in the Hebrew language, still more they held silent. The people seemed to have respected Paul to a greater degree because he spoke to them in Hebrew rather than in Greek. Greek was the lingua franca of the time. This nevertheless infers that at least most of the people understood Greek. And it can be told with certainty from the archaeology of the period that most of the Judeans at this time were indeed fluent in Greek. Their signs on their buildings were all in Greek. Signs on synagogues were in Greek. The signs warning foreigners to stay out of the temple were in Greek. The inscriptions on coins from the time of Herod the Great, from the time of Herod Archelaus, from, from the time of... Herod Agrippa, they were all in Greek. There were Hebrew inscriptions on the coins on one side, sometimes, but there were inscriptions in Greek on all of their coins. And many of the coins only had inscriptions in Greek. There's no doubt the people were fluent in Greek. There's no doubt from the Gospels. Whether modern scholars want to esteem the native tongue of Judea at this time as Hebrew or not 
is immaterial. Because those who spoke it believed it to be Hebrew because that's what they called it in all the copies of Scripture. There's no copy of the New Testament anywhere where you might see the word Aramaic instead of Hebrew. It's They're all Hebrew. That the apostles believed they spoke Hebrew, and that's what they stated, that is true in spite of the fact that after the Babylonian captivity, the language certainly did change, since we see that the use of Targums were indeed necessary by the time of Nehemiah, where the scriptures from the original Hebrew language had to be interpreted for the people. Hebrew speakers evidently adopted many aspects of, of the related Syriac or Aramaic dialect used by the Babylonians. That's clear in the Hebrew of the book of Daniel and, and several other post-exilic books. However, we should not take it for granted that what they spoke was actually the same as Aramaic because the apostles certainly distinguished it. The apostles certainly said in many places that it was Hebrew. The Apostle Luke several times, the Apostle John many times said that it was Hebrew. When Pilate inscribed the sign above the cross of Christ, calling him Yahshua or Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews or the Judeans, when Pilate made that sign, according to John and according to Luke, he inscribed it in Latin, Greek, and Hebrew not Latin, Greek, and Aramaic. To finish verse 2 and go into verse 3. And he said, I am a Judean man, having been born in Tarsus of Cilicia, but raised in this city, having been educated at the feet of Gamaliel, in accordance with the exactness of the law of the fathers, being zealous of God, just as you, all of you are today, who had persecuted this way, meaning Christianity, Paul calls it the way several times, who had persecuted this way unto death, binding and giving over into prison both men and women, as even the high priest bears witness for me and all the body of the elders, from whom also I had gone to Damascus, receiving letters to the brethren. The Codex Beze has an obvious error here where it says from the brethren. And bringing those who were bound to Jerusalem that they may be punished. Now Paul is attempting to establish his credentials before the crowd. That in accordance with Judean standards, he was a soundly educated man and not some random idiot some random maniac. And that at one time, he was entrusted by their own authorities, by the high priests. And so, therefore, he would expect the people to accept his account as being credible. That Gamaliel 
was a highly respected teacher among the Pharisees and among Judeans in general is evident in Acts chapter 5, whereupon his pious and sage advice, even the Sadducees were compelled to release the apostles Peter and John after they were arrested. Gamaliel gets a lot of bad press. He was actually a very wise man. I would advise anyone who thinks otherwise to go back and study the Acts chapter 5. Verse 6. Even though he was caught up in the world of his time. And it happened to me traveling and approaching to Damascus about midday that suddenly from heaven a great light shone around me. Then I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? The Codex Laudianus inserts into the dialogue at the end of this verse the words, It is hard for you to kick against the pricks. That text is found in the King James Version at Acts 9.5 and at Acts 26.14, where Paul recounts this same story in all three places. It's not found in the King James here. And the text only seems to belong to the original version in Acts 26.14, because only there is it found in all of the oldest manuscripts. The line, it is hard for you to kick against the pricks, is actually a Greek adage which refers to an offer of vain resistance. It's found in several of the Greek poets of the 5th century BC, Euripides, Aeschylus, and Pindar. I've read it in those places myself. I, I don't know if it appears in any others. I wouldn't doubt it. Verse 8, And I replied, Who are you, Master? Then he said to me, I am Yahshua the Nazarene, or Nazorian, whom you persecute. Persecuting those of the children of Israel who have the message of the gospel. One is found persecuting God himself. That's what Christ is telling us here. The term Nazarene or Nazorian we discussed at length in our presentation of Acts chapter 2. We'll reserve further comment until we arrive at Acts chapter 24 where Paul calls him. Paul is called, I'm sorry, Paul is called a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes in that chapter. Verse 9. And they, were with, they who were with me surely beheld the light. And I'm going to stop reading that verse here. I'm going to divide that verse here because the beginning of the verse, the beginning of verse 9 is not so controversial. But the later part certainly is. The codices Beze, Laudianus, and the majority text have beheld the light and became fearful. So we see the words, And they that were with me saw indeed the light and were afraid in the King James Version. 
the text of the Christogenian New Testament follows the Alexandrinists, the Sinaiticists, the Vaticanists. The older manuscripts don't have those words and became fearful or and were afraid. The second part of this verse we will discuss at length because it is controversial and I've been confronted with it several times. All the Paul bashers love the later half of Acts 22 verse 9 because they think that it makes Paul out to be a liar. The second part of Acts 22 9 but for the voice, they did not understand that being spoken to me, as the Christogenian of New Testament reads the Greek. Many critics have read the second part of this verse as it stands in the King James Version, where the Greek is consistent across all the manuscripts, so there's no doubt as to the Greek wording of this, of, of this verse, and they have conjectured that it conflicts with Paul's account as given by Luke in Acts chapter 9. Some even go so far as to accuse Paul of lying because of this perceived conflict. This is, for the most part, caused by the very poor rendering of this verse as it is found in the King James Version and also in other versions, such as the RSV. I have posted with the notice for this program on Christogenia, and the people in the Christogenia chat can see below the chat window where I have a line of Greek posted there. I posted the Greek to this, to this um, pericope in case people wanted to read along. It's with the notice of the program on the front page of Christogenia without the diacritical marks so that, it could, so that it could be displayed on all devices. I'm going to walk through this passage and walk through the Greek of it. I know that might be boring. It's important. It's important to see why certain translations in the King James Version, why they are wrong and what the result is of bad translations. And, and here the King James basically does make Paul out to be a liar if we take it at face value. And, and this, you know, there's a lot of little translations in the, in, in the Bible that if they were translated more accurately, people that read the Bible would have a totally different outlook on a lot of aspects of Scripture, especially those having to do with race and identity, of course, but it goes a lot further than that. Something like this, comparing Acts 9-7 and Acts 22-9 in the King James Version, yet you could confront a, a, a marginal Christian with that and, and convince him that the Bible is hogwash because Paul can't even get his story straight. And, and people would buy that. And I've seen people buy that. I've seen the Paul bashers, several of them, use this very passage in order to try to discredit Paul of Tarsus. It's important that we get this stuff right 
it's important that we know how to answer these fools. The phrase in question, I'm only going to read it once, tain de phonane, uk e kusan, tu la luntos moi, moi, I'm sorry, I'm reading Greek, not French, moi. The King James Version of Acts 9-7 reads, Paul's words, and the men which journeyed with him stood speechless, I'm sorry, Luke's words, hearing a voice, but seeing no man. Hearing a voice, the men who journeyed with him stood speechless, hearing a voice but seeing no man. The King James Version of this passage reads, And they that were with me, Paul's words, saw indeed the light and were afraid, but they heard not the voice of him that spoke to me. So did they, did they hear the voice or did they not hear the voice? There is certainly a conflict. The way the, that these passages were translated in the King James Version, as well as in many other versions, yet the proper translation of the passage, which we shall examine here at length, it won't take that long, maybe ten minutes, reveals that there is no conflict between the various original versions of the account. Now, the first word of this clause in its translation, but not in the Greek, is de, D-E. The word means but. It could mean and, or it could mean but, depending on the context. The word, whenever we see this word de, we understand that it marks the beginning of a new sentence or a new clause. It's a conjecture. It, it's a conjunctive particle with adversative force. But in Greek, it's always placed as the second word in the sentence, even though in English we have to translate it first. It's always placed as the second word in the sentence, and therefore in Greek, the word, in word order, it follows the article, tain, which is the here, right? The phrase, tain phonane, the first and third words in the Greek word order, they would be the second and third in English. The phrase, tain phonane, or the voice, is in the accusative case. It marks it as the direct object of the verb. In English, prepositions have to be supplied. This is why when you try to look up prepositions in Strong's Concordance, you have a hard time. Prepositions have to be supplied in English, so they really don't exist in the, as a word in the Greek. There are many prepositions in Greek that appear throughout the New Testament, but not all prepositions in English appear as prepositions in Greek. They appear as word endings on the nouns instead. In English, prepositions must often be supplied to make up for the want of different cases. We don't have, we don't really have something called, what which is called case in our nouns and adjectives in English. Other Indo-European languages designate cases with slightly different forms of a noun. They'll change, some of them change the beginning of the noun, 
and append little particles, little words to it to show the case of the noun. Some of them, most of them, change the ending. An example of case on nouns, which is employed in English, may illustrate the need for the adding of prepositions in translation. Where we see the, the, the phrase, the word of God, in English, we can substitute the phrase, God's word. So we see that the apostrophe and the letter S are used in English to represent the genitive case. However, to represent the genitive case, we can use the preposition of instead, or perhaps, in some contexts, the preposition from would be more appropriate. So we could say God's word, or we could say the word of God, adding that preposition. In Greek and other Indo-European languages, while the other grammatical cases are represented by different word endings, this is not so in English. And for that reason, appropriate prepositions must be used instead. So in my translation here, I have supplied the preposition for. With the genitive case, we might want to supply the preposition of or from. With the dative case, we might want to supply the preposition to or with. Here, with the accusative case, my translation supplies the preposition for. I'm sorry if this is boring, but I have to demonstrate why I translated this line the way I did. Now that word phone, that's the word that we get the English word phone from, P-H-O-N-E, right? It's a voice here. It may have been rendered as a sound. It's, also, it, it's often translated either way in the King James Version of the Bible. A phone is a voice or a sound. That's why we use it for our word phone. The next word of this clause, the fourth word, is ook. It's a negative particle. It means not. As it always does in Luke's writings, and I could tell you that with verbs, ook appears, ook and, and its similar words appear about 240 times. It always precedes the word or phrase which it negates. The verb ekusan is a third-person plural for, form of the verb ekuo, which is Strong's number 191. It means to hear, to hearken, to listen to, to give ear to, to obey, to hear and understand, according to Liddell and Scott. And that last sense, to hear and understand, that sense is very often used in the New Testament, and I'll give examples. Where Christ is, have, is attributed as having said in Matthew chapter 13, verse 9, Who hath ears to hear, let him hear. It is this same verb both times where we see the word hear. Who has ears to hear, let him hear. Whoever has ears to hear, let him hear it.
It is clear from the context that everyone present must have heard the sound of Christ's words. And certainly, they all had ears. Likewise, once we properly translate this verse here in Acts, it is evident that there were many present with call who did not understand what was said to Paul, although they heard the sound. Either the physical act of hearing or the process of hearing with understanding may be represented by the same word. Otherwise, how could one hearing hear not? Now, if Luke wanted to write, or perhaps if Paul wanted to say that the men present with him physically heard not the voice, he could have stopped right here. No other words are necessary. No other words are necessary to express that idea that the men who were with him did not hear what was said or didn't hear the voice at all. By continuing with the next phrase, the next three words, Paul explicitly reveals his intended meaning that the men did hear a voice but did not understand what it said. The next phrase, the next two words in this passage, to laluntas. That phrase, that, that verb laluntas, first off, is a participle. It's a present active form of the verb laleo, which is to speak or to talk. With the article to, it is a substantive, meaning that it is a word or group of words from another part of speech, and here we have a verb, right? With the article, it's being used as a noun. A substantive is a word or group of words which are not normally a noun, but they're being used as a noun. That's a facet of Greek grammar. It's actually a pretty cool facet. The form of both the participle and the article here is of either the masculine or the neuter genders. This is important. Very ma Many of the words in Greek have different forms for masculine and neuter genders in certain parts of speech. Many of them have the same forms. Tu laluntos is a present active participle, but participles in Greek, they're kind of like hybrid verb nouns. They have the form of verbs and they have the endings of nouns. They're, they're actually pretty versatile words. They could also be adjectives. Many of the participles in the New Testament are adjectives. Most of them are verbs. This form, tulaluntos, can be masculine or it can be neuter. There is no personal pronoun present. That word him in this passage in the King James Version does not exist in the Greek. The phrase, the one who, in the revised standard version of this passage, that word who, there's no pronoun in the Greek of this passage. 
they made it up. The King James made up a pronoun because they didn't understand the passage. The Revised Standard Version made up a pronoun. They made up a double pronoun, the one who. They made up a whole phrase because they didn't understand the passage. The translators just didn't understand what was going on. Now, Paul or Luke, the writer or the speaker, may easily have included a personal pronoun here if they wanted to explicitly state as much. Rather, this phrase, if we interpret it in the neuter gender rather than the masculine, the phrase may just as properly, and perhaps more properly because there is no personal pronoun, be written in the neuter gender as of that being spoken. Not referring to the one who is speaking, referring to what is being spoken. Of that being spoken because, to laluntos, the phrase is in the genitive case. Now the King James Version has of him that spake. The Revised Standard Version has of the one who was speaking. There is no explicit, it may mean of him that spake, that's fine, but there's no explicit pronoun. The Revised Standard Version of the one who is speaking, there's no explicit pronoun. They are inferred pronouns. They're inferred based on the interpretation of Tulaluntos as being in the masculine gender. We don't need the pronouns. We don't need to add the pronouns if we interpret the phrase in the neuter gender. And the form belongs to either gender. Now the last word, the Greek word moi, M-O-I, is in the dative case and is therefore rendered to me. When a translator is confronted with options, in order to be fair, he must always do his best to choose the option which is consistent within the context of the larger work. The phrase, to laluntos, may indeed be rendered of he who is speaking, and that's fine in a lot of contexts. But with such a reading in the immediate context here, the words of the sentence, in the words of this sentence, the phrase is actually superfluous. However, the phrase may also be rendered of that being spoken. And if we render it in that manner, which is perfectly literal Greek, we only interpret the gender, which can be either form, masculine or neuter. In that manner, if we interpret this phrase to mean of that being spoken, there is no conflict with Luke's record of Paul's statements. There is no conflict with Acts 9-7, and Paul is suddenly not a liar. It is dishonest to force a translation which makes the original writer out to be a liar. Doing that, then the translator is really the liar. <laughs> if there are options, wherever possible, the option must be chosen in which there is no conflict. You can't presume 
that the tra that, that the writer is contradicting himself if you have two choices and choice B creates no contradiction and so the manner in which this verse is rendered in the Christogenian New Testament is both quite proper and there is no conflict whatsoever with Paul's earlier statement as it was recorded at Acts 9-7. Indeed, the men with him heard the voice or the sound, but they did not hear with understanding what it was that the sound had said. They didn't make the words out. I've had, as a side note, I've had many critics of my New Testament who use the excuse that none of the other versions do it that way. <laughs> and this here is one glaring example of why all of those other versions are often wrong. We should not be respecters of the stature of persons or of Bible translations. There are a couple of other translations which do better with this passage than the ones mentioned here, but I didn't really see any of them that were totally to my own liking. I mean, it doesn't really matter. It's a damn shame that the New Living Translation did better than the King James or the RSV here with this passage. It's a damn shame because that's one of the most corrupt translations in existence in a thousand other passages. It's horrible. Acts 22.10 Then I said, What shall I do, Master? And the prince, or the Lord, if you will, and the prince said to me, Arising, go into Damascus, and there it shall be spoken to you concerning all things which are assigned for you to do. And since I saw nothing because of the effulgence of that light, led by the hand by those who were with me, I came into Damascus. And here's another phrase that could be controversial, right? And since I saw nothing because of the effulgence of that light, well, that's not the way the King James reads it. The King James, and when I could not see for the glory of that light, The Nestle Aland Novum Testamentum Greca, in this case both the NA27 and the NA28, following the preponderance of other manuscripts has, and since I had not looked. The Codex Laudianus has, and since I did not see. The King James actually did better than they did in this respect. I don't know what manuscript they followed. We'll discuss that shortly. Here, the text of the Christogonian New Testament follows the Codex Vaticanus, which has, and since I saw nothing. Paul is describing his blindness, which resulted from looking at the light, and not any attempt on his part to avoid looking at the light, and, and the NA27 and some of the manuscripts which it follows infer that. Of course, the subsequent history of Paul's poor eyesight makes it evident 
that the proper reading for this verse is found in the Codex Vaticanus. Damascus, I, I failed to um, discuss Damascus at any great length presenting Acts chapter 9. I, discussed, I did discuss Damascus at great length in my presentation at the book of Amos here last year. From Hellenistic times, there was a very large population of Judeans dwelling in Damascus. And the customs they upheld, distinctly from the Greeks and Syrians who lived there, were always a cause of troubles. There were always troubles between the Judeans of Damascus and the Syrians of Damascus. The Romans had to deal with that many times. From Josephus, from Antiquities of the Judeans, from Book 12, which is a little before this time, a couple of hundred years actually, Josephus records, we also know that Marcus Agrippa was of like disposition toward the Judeans. For when the people of Ionia were angry at them and besought Agrippa that they, and they only, might have those privileges of citizens, which Antiochus, the grandson of Seleucus, who by the Greeks was called the God, had bestowed on, had bestowed on them and desired that if the Judeans were to be joint partakers with them, they might be obliged to worship the gods they themselves worshipped. In other words, many of the Greeks wanted to compel the Judeans who dwelt in Damascus, and this is 200 years before the time of Paul. They wanted to compel them to paganism. But when these matters were brought to the trial, the Judeans prevailed and obtained permission to make use of their own customs, and this under the patronage of Nicholas of Damascus. For Agrippa gave sentence that he, meaning Nicholas of Damascus, could not make a new rule. Now this Nicholas of Damascus also apparently wrote a voluminous history of Judea, which is now lost, and which Josephus very often cited. But Josephus didn't always like it. In Book 14 of Antiquities, Josephus writes, It is true that Nicholas of Damascus says that Antipater, Antipater meaning the father of Herod the Great, says that Antipater was of the family of the principal Judeans who came out of Babylon into Judea, but that assertion of his was to gratify Herod, who was his son, and who by certain changes of fortune came afterward to be king of the Judeans, whose history we shall give you in its proper place hereafter. And this is probably about 130 years before Paul. It is not apparent in what capacity Josephus meant where he called Herod the son of Nicholas of Damascus since Antipater was Herod's natural father. And the Greek word has a wide range of meaning. However, what is apparent is that we see that Nicholas of Damascus was willing to corrupt history for the benefit of Herod the Edomite subverter, and Josephus was quick to correct that corruption. It's an example 
it, it's kind of related to Damascus and, and the things that were going on there and the size and, and influence of the Judean community there and the age of it because it predates the time of Herod the Great. There's no doubt. But that passage that I just read and that reference from Josephus helped to show that Josephus was actually a, a very honest man. And wanted to, um, well, well, in four places in antiquities and in wars of the Judeans, he gives us the lineage of Herod that the Jews love to call the Great. I hate to call him Herod the Great. And he tells us that both his father and his mother were Edomites, and among the Edomite converts to Judaism. Nicholas of Damascus evidently tried to make Herod's father, a Judean, and Josephus, Josephus protested in his writing. Verse 12, And a certain Hananias, a devout man in accordance with the law, accredited by all of the Judean settlers, and, and this again is Paul referring back to Hananias and telling us about the Judean settlers in Damascus, and that's what he calls them. The majority text, as well as an 8th century papyrus copy of the book of Acts, designated P41, has here, rather than Judean settlers, they have, by all of the Judeans settled in Damascus, The King James simply has by all of the Jews who dwelt there. We see that in that case, the King James does not follow the majority text. It's quite often that the King James, it, it's not frequent, but, but there are many places where the King James doesn't follow the majority text. The King James Version's New Testament. This is an opportunity to talk about this because this is also poorly understood. I've had people um, defend the Textus Receptus, defend the majority text, and not even realize that the King James isn't really based on it. The King James Version's New Testament translators primarily employed Theodore Beza's edition of the Greek, edition of the Greek New Testament, but they also consulted the editions of Erasmus, Stephanus, and the Complutensian Polyglot. Theodore Beza was a disciple of John Calvin. It's for him he didn't create the Codex Beze. The Codex Beze dates to probably the 5th century AD. But for him, the Codex Beze was named. He had possession of it. In the, 16, in the late 1500s, he also had possession of the Codex Claromontanus, which we will become familiar with as I present the Epistles of Paul. That's a 6th sixth, sixth century manuscript. The term majority text... And let me say that Theodore Beza's New Testament edition of the New Testament Greek does not entirely employ the Codex Beze, even though he had possession of it. He also referred to many other 
ancient manuscripts. Well, well, maybe not as ancient as that, but many other older manuscripts, manuscripts from before his own time. The term majority text, the Textus Receptus is not the majority text. The term majority text represents a much wider collection of medieval Greek manuscripts, not all of which are always in agreement with each other. However, they have a common history as ecclesiastical copies, and therefore the variants among them are far fewer than the variants which they have collectively when compared to other more ancient manuscripts. The so-called Textus Receptus is not the majority text, but properly that name represents another Greek New Testament manuscript, which was created by the Dutch brothers named Elzevir. They were printers by trade. They employed many of the same sources used by the King James translators in order to create their text, but they called their text the Textus Receptus as an advertising gimmick, and the name stuck. The Textus Receptus wasn't created for nearly, I think it was 20 years, I, I think it was 16 years actually, after the King James Version was published. I think the Textus Receptus was published first in 1627. It comes from a lot of the same sources that the King James translators used, but it's not the same. And the King James translation is not entirely based on the majority text, the majority text being a collection of church manuscripts which mostly agree with each other which follow each other very closely. Scribes make mistakes, right? I thought I'd have the opportunity to explain that because in this one place, the King James and the majority text do not agree. Verse 13. Speaking of Hananias, Paul says that, Coming to me and standing by, said to me, Saul, brother, see again. And I, at that moment, looked up at him. Now that word moment is from the Greek word hora, and, and we get our English word hour from that word. And that might get, you know, the difficulty in translating some things is evident with that word hora. That's the word that Luke used when he said that the, um, the people in Ephesus had chanted, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians for two hours. And that Luke uses the, the number two and that word hora. Does he mean two moments? That really doesn't fit the context. Why would he even mention it? Does he mean two literal hours as we understand an hour? That's a long time for people to chant in, in a stadium in a confused environment. When Luke also says that they're all shouting different things and, and making conflicting accusations. So, so some words are just difficult to translate, and that's one of them. And he said, The God of our fathers undertook for you to know that of his will, and to see the just one, and to hear a voice from his mouth. 
that you would be a witness for him to all men of what you have seen and heard. And now what should you do? Arise to be immersed and to wash away your errors or sins, being called by his name. Now that last clause here may be read, calling upon his name, as the King James virtually always reads it. And while arguments can be made that either reading is correct, we would rather interpret the word according to its most literal sense. Verbs in the medium voice, properly the subject of the verb both produces and receives the action. We describe this use at length, where the same verb, epikalio, in the same context, is discussed in the first segment of our presentation of Acts chapter 2. The King James Version here has calling on the name of the Lord. Yet, there are, there's no indication in any manuscript that the phrase of the Lord exists in this passage in place of the pronoun is. It's not in any of the manuscripts in the NA27 or the NA28. Isaiah chapter, so, so the King James, the, 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 they invented those words, the Lord. I, I don't see them in any manuscript. Perhaps some medieval, what, one of the manuscripts that the King James relied upon, perhaps Erasmus invented them, perhaps the Complutensian Diaglot included? I don't know. I don't know where they came from. I don't know where they got those words from. There's a few words. There's more than a few words in the King James Version of the Greek, of, of, the, of the English Bible, where I don't see the, the, the corresponding Greek words anywhere. It's not that important here, but it's important. Isaiah 45.3 and I will give thee the treasures of darkness and hidden riches of secret places, that thou mayest know that I, Yahweh, which call thee by thy name, am the God of Israel. For Jacob my servant's sake and Israel mine elect, I have called thee by thy name. I have surnamed thee, though thou hast not known me. Isaiah 45, of course, is talking about, is talking to and about the dispersion of the children of Israel. Isaiah 62, to the same audience, dispersed Israel, divorced Israel, if you will. For Zion's sake will I not hold my peace, and for Jerusalem's sake I will not rest, until the righteousness thereof go forth as brightness. And the salvation thereof is a lamp that burns. And the nations shall see thy righteousness, and all kings thy glory. And thou shalt be called by a new name, which the mouth of Yahweh shall name. Christian Israelites, calling themselves by the name of Christ, have indeed fulfilled these prophecies, and many others similar to these. I would rather interpret that phrase, all who are called by the name of the Lord, since it could be translated either way, or being called by his name at the end of 
Acts 22.16, which is a perfectly legitimate understanding of the Greek. Verse 17. Then it happened upon my returning into Jerusalem and my praying in the temple for me to be in a trance and to see him saying to me, hastening, then depart quickly from Jerusalem because they will not receive your testimony concerning me. Remember in, um, in the gospel, Yahshua Christ cursed the fig tree and said that no good fruit would come from it forever. Everybody who heard his word was already converted, for the most part. And I said, Prince, they know that I was imprisoning and flaying those believing in you through the, throughout the assembly halls. And when they spilled the blood of Stephen, your witness, even I myself was standing by and consenting and keeping the garments of those slaying him. Paul is humbly denouncing his own worthiness before Yahweh. He's telling Joshua Christ that because he had persecuted his people he wasn't worthy of his attention he wasn't worthy of any any ministry or any mission verse 21 and he said to me go because I shall send you off to distant nations here we have an episode Paul seeing a vision and communicating with Christ in the temple of Judea in Jerusalem. Here we have an episode which has not been previously described. In Acts 9.15, Luke records that Yahshua had told Hananias when he had expressed doubts about Paul. <coughs> Yahshua told Hananias to go, <coughs> excuse me, to go, for he is a vessel chosen by me, who is to bear my name before both the nations and the kings and the son of the sons of Israel. The record says that Yahshua told those words to Hananias, though, and not to Paul. Sometime later, after Paul joins the original apostles in Jerusalem, which is recorded further on in the very same chapter of Acts, chapter 9, we read from verse 29 that he, meaning Paul, had both spoken to and disputed with the Hellenists, and they endeavored to kill him. But discovering it, the brethren brought him down into Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. Now we find out later, as I elucidated in the later chapters of Acts, that Paul established Christian assemblies in Colicia, which he revisited on his later on his later journeys. However, there's nothing in Acts chapter nine about Paul's vision in a temple which we see here. Now, there's also nothing in Acts chapter 9, which indicates that he could not have had this vision. Nothing at all. Luke makes records after the fact and doesn't necessarily get them all from Paul. 
or doesn't necessarily get complete accounts from Paul. These differences do not discredit the accounts in Acts. Rather, these differences increase the credibility of the accounts in Acts because they are different records, they are different attestations, which were presented at different times over a 30-year period. You try telling a story of something that happened two years ago today, and then tell that story in 10 years, and see that different things stand out in your mind, and that you're able to convey different details of that story at different times. If you don't write it all down, and, and, and continue writing down bits and pieces as time goes on, that you can think about and fill in, that then you're going to tell the same story, and you're going to tell it several different ways over a 30-year period. There's no doubt. These accounts, though, these accounts, which are different records and attestations presented over uh, at different times over a 30-year period, they never conflict with one another. Once we understand that the, 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 the Greek and, and some of the problems with translation which I hope to have made clear here at verse 9, they never conflict with one another. They only coincide with one another, and they corroborate and, and enrich the details of each other. Although Paul expressed a knowledge of his commission. To bring the gospel of Christ to the nations as early as the events which are recorded at the end of Acts chapter 13, it is never explained at any point earlier in Acts just how Paul came to that knowledge. We only see in Acts chapter 9 that Yahshua informed Hananias of Paul's forthcoming mission. There's no record of that mission ever being explained to Paul. But in Acts chapter 13, Paul certainly knew that that was his mission. While Luke did not record this event here of Paul's vision in the temple in Acts chapter 9, here where it appears in Paul's own testimony we do see how Paul initially came to the knowledge of his mission. We see it here. Being recorded by Luke here, it substantiates, and it is substantiated by the entire body of Luke's earlier records in this regard throughout the book of Acts. We must not look, and, and that's obvious when we read this here, but we didn't see it in Acts 9, but then it, it, it fits hand in glove with, with everything that Paul does in Acts, right? We must not look at the book of Acts as a complete record. It is only a scant collection of records describing various events which took place over several decades. If it were a complete narrative, 
it would be much longer than, than the 28 short chapters which we have. Neither should we look at the book of Acts as a single ongoing narrative. Luke, who was only an eyewitness to a few of the events and acts, most of which are recorded towards the end of the book, Luke had ostensibly collected the accounts which it contains from multiple sources, later collating them in order to present a chronological sequence of certain events which had indeed occurred over a long period of time. Most of the events and acts are highly abbreviated descriptions. And those which we have in detail were evidently completely transmitted or more completely transmitted for particular reasons. These events which we do have serve not only that we have examples of the conduct of the apostles in the faith of Christ, but also that the events and acts can be verified historically, and indeed they can. And more importantly, these records exist so that we can have a record of the religious transitions which the apostles experienced from the structure and the rituals of the Old Covenant to the liberty in Christ and the New Covenant, and from a focus on the remnant at Jerusalem to a focus of the Word of God on the reconciliation of the outcasts of the children of Israel. And we see that explicitly in John's Gospel, where he says that Christ would be sacrificed for the children of God who were spread abroad. And how the apostles accepted those transitions so that we may have a record of their validity, the validity of the transition. This is not conjecture. Such things are explicitly presented by Luke in many portions of the book, such as the opening verses of the book of Acts, where Luke precisely distinguishes, in the words of Christ, the baptism of John from the baptism of Christ. Every one of these accounts that Luke recorded were recorded for a reason. That's why, out of 30 years, these are the accounts that we have. Unfortunately, that most important facet of the book of Acts, that it is indeed a book of transition is virtually ignored by all of the denominations. And if they can't understand the first few verses, how could they understand the rest of the book?
Verse 22. Now they listened until this word and raised their voice, saying, Take such as him from the earth, for it is not fit that he lives. While all of these Judeans who were at the temple must have been familiar with the Christians of Judea and their theological arguments, as we have seen in chapter 21 of Acts, that those Christians were myriads in number. How many myriads of believers, and all of them were zealous of the law. They were talking about Christians. The Apostle James and the men with him were talking about Christians, zealous of the law. And, and we explained that those Christians became what was known as the Ethionite Christians. Now, there were myriads of them. Now, the population of Judea, the population of Jerusalem has been estimated at this time as high as 2 million, which is a very credible number. So even 30 or 40,000 of them, if 30 or 40,000 of them perhaps were Christians, well, that would meet the description of how many myriads... But it would be a drop in the bucket of two million people, right? It, it wouldn't be maybe two or three percent of the population, maybe less than that. 20,000, two million, point, point one percent of the population, 40,000, point two percent. That's a pretty low number, right? Or 1% or 2%. Maybe my math is off, but it's still a pretty low number, right? All of the Judeans who were at the temple must have been familiar with the Christians of Judea and their theological arguments by this time. This is um, 25 years after the crucifixion, at least. Luke here seems to be indicating that the commission of Paul to distant nations is what had raised the greatest ire from the Judeans who were present and heard these words. It is therefore the violation of their idea of religious exclusivity in their relationship with God that made the Judeans most jealous. That's what Luke seems to be indicating. And for this, they wanted to kill Paul. Not much earlier than this, and, and this is a pretty, um, it, it, it might be a pretty abstract idea I'm about to present. Not much earlier than this, Paul had said in his epistle to the Romans concerning the Israelite people of Judea, and we established that that epistle was indeed written about a year before this very time from the Troad, maybe not even a year, maybe six months. Then I say, had Israel not known, firstly, Moses says, I will provoke you to jealousy by a nation that is not, by a nation without understanding, I will provoke you to anger, Romans 10.19. And he's referring to Israel, Israelites in Judea. He's comparing in Romans chapters 9, 10, and 
much of 11, Paul is comparing the Israelites in Judea to the Edomites in Judea. That comparison does not stop in Romans chapter 9. It continues throughout the next two chapters. Paul here is using the words of Moses in Deuteronomy chapter 32 as a literary device. He had already demonstrated his knowledge of true Israel in their dispersions when he wrote two Corinthians, which we established he was written on his way to Greece the year before this, the year before he wrote Romans in the Troad and made Jerusalem by the Pentecost. And in that epistle, he quoted a passage from this same scripture, Deuteronomy chapter 32, only two or three verses away, or perhaps four. He quoted Deuteronomy 32.17 in relation to the pagan nations who were Israel according to the flesh, as he tells the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 10. I'm sorry. It's not 2 Corinthians. It's 1 Corinthians chapter 10 written from Ephesus. I apologize. He quotes the same chapter of Deuteronomy in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 where he says that Israel, according to the flesh, had been sacrificing to devils and not to God. So in Romans 10.19, Paul quotes Deuteronomy 32.21 in reference to the Israelites of Judea, who were jealous of their relationship to God through the Old Covenant and the temple rituals, and therefore provoked by a nation which is not. However, in this context, the references to a nation which is not, and to a nation without understanding, as Paul quotes Deuteronomy 32 at Romans 10.19, can only be references to the dispersed, divorced Israelites, since nobody else was ever to, was ever to receive the gospel of Christ from Jeremiah chapter 5, from verse 20. Declare this in the house of Jacob. Jeremiah is writing after the children of Israel are deported and most of Judah. Declare this in the house of Jacob and publish it in Judah, saying, Hear now this, O foolish people, and without understanding, which have eyes and see not, which have ears and hear not from Isaiah chapter 7, from verse 8, part of verse 8. Within three score and five years shall Ephraim be broken, that it be not a people. From Hosea 1, from verse 9. Then said God, call his name Lo-Ami, for ye are not my people, and I will not be your God. Yet the number of the children of Israel shall be as the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured nor numbered, and it shall come to pass that in the place where it was said unto them, Ye are not my people, there it shall be said to them, Ye are the sons of the living God. 
then shall the children of Judah and the children of Israel be gathered together and appoint themselves one head. And they shall come up out of the land, for great shall be the day of Jezreel. Well, Paul seems to have used Deuteronomy 32.21 as a literary device today. The proverbial shoe is on the other foot. Which seems to be the original meaning of the words of Moses, where millions of white Christians are jealous over the supposed chosen people who are really only Canaanites and Edomites and are truly a nation which is not those eternal enemies of God. That's how I would read Deuteronomy 32.21 in reference to the position of the true children of Israel today. Paul used it in reference to the dispersed Israelites and the people in Judea who claimed to be the people of God. And only some, some of them were, and they're the ones he means. Acts 22:23. Then upon their crying out and hurling their garments and throwing dirt into the air. Now, in this passage, the Codex Beze has throwing dirt into the heaven. And that's telling, right? It's telling because it is evident from that from the Codex Beze's reading that the word Uranos may simply be understood to refer to the sky in at least some contexts. Verse twenty four The commander ordered him to be brought into the encampment, saying to interrogate him with a whip that he may discover for what reason they addressed him thusly. And as they held the thongs out at him, Paul said to the appointed centurion, If a man is a Roman and uncondemned, unconvicted, is it lawful for you to whip him? And hearing it, the centurion, going to the commander, reported it, saying, What are you about to do? For this man is a Roman. The Codex Beze and the majority text have the exclamation at the end of that verse, Watch what you were about to do, for this man is a Roman. The Romans had different laws for non-citizens than they themselves enjoyed. Non-citizens were treated much more harshly. Paul had a similar experience as it was described in Acts chapter 16, where Paul informed the magistrates at Philippi that they had unjustly beaten and imprisoned both he and Silas since they were Romans and had not been lawfully convicted. It didn't matter if they weren't Romans, but they were Romans, so they had due process. Non-Roman citizens didn't really have due process. Verse 27. And coming forth, the commander said to him, Tell me, are you a Roman? And he said, Yes. Then the commander replied, I with great sum 
acquired this citizenship. The Codex Beze has verse 28 to read, and replying, the commander said, I know with how great a psalm I acquired this citizenship. Not until 212 A.D. were all free citizens of the empire, uh, I'm sorry, were all free persons of the empire considered citizens. And that was during Rome's decline, in a period where it was more attractive to increase the tax rolls than to preserve Roman blood. Caracalla, the Roman emperor who made that change, was himself a Berber, and therefore he shouldn't have been expected. He shouldn't be expected to be a preserver of Roman blood. In the Roman Republic and the early years of the empire, Roman citizenship had many benefits and it was highly valued. While it was granted to peoples of certain subject nations, such as the Greeks, it was not granted freely to all. This man, who, who says that he bought Roman citizenship, this man was a military tribune, yet he profess, professes that he bought his citizenship with great psalm. The rank of military tribune, which he held, was at one time usually held by young men of the Roman equestrian class, and it was seen as a stepping stone to a position in the Roman Senate. Sometimes freedmen were given citizenship for acts of military valor and could work their way up through the ranks like that. But this word which is used here of the way this man acquired his citizenship can only mean head, capital, or some. Kephalahiu. And that word seems to preclude the possibility that he gained his citizenship by valor. It, it refers to money. So, it, it, he bought his way into the citizenship, but he also holds a pretty high rank in the Roman army, being a military tribune. There are explicit, I've seen explicit statements in the classics concerning ancient Athens, where there was a problem with people who had surreptitiously bought their way onto the rolls as citizens. I've never seen anything explicit mentioned in later historians of that same thing happening in Rome. It must have happened. It seems to happen everywhere else. Why not Rome? <coughs> I'm sorry, to continue verse 28, my throat's dry. And Paul said, but I likewise was born. So Paul's telling us he was born a Roman citizen. So forthwith, those about to interrogate him withdrew from him, and the commander feared, finding out that he is a Roman and that he was bound. Romans couldn't be bound. They couldn't be placed in 
they couldn't be imprisoned without due process. Colicia and its primary city, Tarsus, became subject to Rome under Pompey. Judea also became subject to Rome under Pompey. Judeans, Judea remained a kingdom, and its citizens were not granted citizenship. They were not granted Roman citizenship. When Tarsus and Colicia became subject to Rome under Pompey, Tarsus became the capital city of the Roman province of Colicia. In 66 BC, shortly after it was made subject, the inhabitants of Tarsus received Roman citizenship. Rome bestowed citizenship on some of their subjected peoples, not on all of them. If Paul's ancestors, and this is conjectural, if Paul's ancestors had already resided in Tarsus before 66 BC, this would be how Paul had acquired Roman citizenship as a birthright. Otherwise, we do not know how he may have acquired it. There are no explicit statements anywhere else. The Nestle Aland Novum Testament of Greca attests that Acts chapter 22 verse 28 is the last verse of Acts which survived in that manuscript in the Codex Beze. Verse 30 And on the next day wishing to know with certainty why he was accused by the Judeans he released him, and the majority text has, he released him from his bonds, or from the bonds, and ordered the high priests and all the council to gather together, and bringing down Paul, he stood before them. Paul, being born in Tarsus, and being a citizen of Tarsus, thereby also being a Roman citizen, had many more legal rights than Christ. Christ was born in Judea when Judea was a kingdom, and therefore, Judeans not having Roman citizenship, Christ had no rights as a Roman. Christ had, even if he wanted to, he had no right to appeal any higher than Pontius Pilate. Paul had rights as a Roman. Therefore, we shall see when he's given a choice, we shall see that Paul appeals to Caesar. Therefore, Paul goes to Rome to preach the gospel, but he doesn't go as he thought. He didn't go as a free man. He went under bonds and nevertheless did preach the gospel in Rome. And the records are there in his own epistles to demonstrate that. And in the end of the book of Acts. The secular laws conform to the sovereign will of Yahweh. Paul was commissioned to bring the gospel of God to Rome. 
Christ was destined to die outside the walls of Jerusalem. The laws at the time didn't leave any other choice. Everything happened just as it was expressed in the Word of God. That will that will end my presentation of Acts chapter 22. Yahweh willing, I will be here in two weeks with Acts chapter 23. I will be here tomorrow night with Sword Brethren, Pragmatic Genesis, part 9. Once again, next week, Friday and Saturday, I'm inviting callers, having an open forum, and inviting callers to participate trolls will be disinvited quickly thank you for listening praise Yahweh and good night call recording has been completed